Hello, and welcome to the Law of Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Vivian Gornick, whose new book is called Unfinished Business, Notes of a Chronic Rereader. That's right. It was pretty exciting when we got Vivian Gornick to agree to be on the show. I was, I'm a fan of hers, and I'm a fan of her writing, and it was really just a pleasure to kind of just to talk to her, but also fun to read her book, which is about her rereading older works and older books that she's read a number of times and the different ways in which she experiences them every time she rereads them. Yeah, I I too am a a very profuse Vivian Gornick fan, and it was just exciting to, to get to see her actually on the computer screen and talk to her. And I related to this book because I have books that I, I love rereading over and over. And I do notice a slight shift sometimes in the way I, I perceive them and what they're about and what jumps out at me. Or, but I haven't made it. It seems like she really makes it a habit to reread books annually. And I haven't done that. So that was inspiring. Yeah, I generally do not reread books. Two reasons. One reason is that I fear that it will somehow erase the experience of the f- first read. And then two is that there's so many books and I worry that it's almost a sin to reread one. Well, what about all the other ones? What are you doing if you're you're not reading it's something different? So this was interesting for me to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I hear what you're saying. I I guess I don't reread very long books because I I like short, intense novels, especially. So those are easy to reread. Oh, interesting. Is there one that you've reread the most times? Possibly. I don't know if I want to say what it is. You don't want to say what it is? <laughs> well, because what if it's not a, a substantial enough book and people judge me for rereading something? No uh, way. No way. You can reread anything. Wait, how could it possibly not a substantial? Well, I'm not going to. Well, now there's so much lead up. I won't, I won't tell you what it is. It's about a tragic relationship. And I've, I've reread it many times. But also, you know, I think I kind of reread books the same way I might reread a poem. It's not so much for what it's about as how it's written and mm. instructed by that and, and enjoying the experience of just beautifully crafted words that doesn't have an expiration date. Well, with that mystery <laughs> um, of what Kate Wolf rereads the most, <laughs> let's listen to the interview with Vivian. Okay. joined by acclaimed writer and critic Vivian Gornick. Gornick began her career in the 1960s as a staff writer for the Village Voice, RIP Village Voice. Since then, she has written a number of acclaimed books like The Situation in the Story, The Memoirs, Fierce Attachments, and The Odd Woman in the City, as well as essay collections like The End of the Novel of Love and The Men in My Life, which were both nominated for National Book Critics Circle Awards. She has covered politics, feminism, communism, and literature in publications like The New York Times, The Nation, The New York Review of Books, The Atlantic, and many more. We'd be here all day if I were to list all of them. And her latest book is called Unfinished Business, Notes of a Chronic Rereader. Thank you so much, Vivian, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Vivian, in this book, in the introduction, you have such a 
concise description of what great literature is. And it struck me so strongly. I was wondering if you would just, we could start off by having you read it to us. Sure. Once again, I found myself reading differently. That's a reference to the whole introduction where I'm constantly describing how I read differently every couple of years. I took out the books, novels in particular. I had read and reread and read them again. This time around, I saw that whatever the story, whatever the style, whatever the period, the central drama in literary work was nearly always dependent on the perniciousness of the human self-divide, the fear and ignorance it generates, the shame it gives rise to, the debilitating mystery in which it enshrouds us. I also saw that invariably what made the work of a good book affecting, and this was something implicit in the writing, trapped somewhere in the nerves of the prose, was some haunted imagining as though coming from the primeval unconscious of human existence with the rift healed, the parts brought together, the hunger for connection put in brilliant working order. I just love that description because I think it just really gets to what a great book is. And it also seems to really forefront the importance of style. And that is in some ways what makes a novel, in my opinion, last, you know, is if the style is able to last and still seem relevant. So as you, since this book is about rereading, I was just wondering, as you revisited books, were there books where the style of a book that you had loved once, where the style of it, the way it was written, just no longer appealed at all? Beyond subject matter, did you find that certain kinds of writing that you had once been drawn to, you were no longer drawn to? I wouldn't put it that way. I never think of style as either superior or prominent in that I think that what matters is how much, how deeply a writer feels, how much she or he perceives, and how strong is the resonance between what I feel and what the writer feels. And that crosses civilizations, that crosses generations, that crosses centuries. That is for me what makes a good book and a great book. If I can read a book written 150 years ago and still feel connected to the emotional truth that the writer is communicating, out of which grows the style. It's not that style comes first, never. That is not what it's all about, ever. The thing is for every writer to think and feel as deeply as possible and to pay as much attention as possible, to pay attention to what one knows. And then, of course, what one knows is very important. The graphic artist, Milton Glaser, who died this past year, he was really a great figure in New York and very important. You know, he's the man who made I Love New York. He's the man who made endless numbers of logos. And he once came to address an institute, a lunch that I was at, and he was, now he did not consider himself an intellectual. He did not consider himself anything like a thinking artist. He thought of himself as a visual and image-making artist. Nevertheless, he said something very important. He discussed what it means to be an artist in his own view. And he said he first wanted to be a painter. So he went to Italy and he studied with great painters who were still alive in the 1950s. And he came home and he said, what they taught me 
was to pay attention. Now, what do I mean by paying attention? He said, I had a Jewish mother like everybody else, whom I ignored, discounted, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but I came home and I sat down in my mother's kitchen and she was talking as she always talked. But this time I listened to her and watched her and heard her as I never had before. And then I drew her. And that drawing was art. And it was only because he said, it taught me to pay attention. Now, the meaning of those words is all important. And that's what I mean, really, when I'm talking about, that's what you are feeling. You are feeling the depth of attention to which a writer is paying, and the style comes out of that. Well, that's an interesting story. It's how Milton Glaser learned how to pay attention. How did you learn how to pay attention? That's a good question. I don't know if I can answer it exactly or even exactly truly, but I'll tell you this. In 1980, I set out to write a book on women in science, and I wrote that book. I interviewed about 80 scientists, mostly in New York, but around the country too. One of them was a woman who became a geneticist. She was born into a middle-class Long Island family where the mother said, as my mother said, you're a smart girl, make something yourself, but always remember love is the most important thing in a woman's life. And you should have a profession only to make sure that if your husband dies or leaves you, you've got something to go on. She was raised in the same way, in a better class, really very, very middle class. And so they lived in Long Island and they went to the mall all the time, she and her mother, dragging her to the mall. And she said, one day going into the mall, I noticed around these malls, there's always a band of grass, like around it, and then a little concrete curb, right? That's what I've seen. She's looking at the narrow decorative piece of grass, and she noticed that a whole lot of leaves, little tiny plants were growing with three leaves growing this way and one growing the other way. She's like six years old or something or eight years old. She wondered why the leaves were growing differently. <laughs> that little girl was destined. Now, I would never have wondered that. But what I would wonder from earliest age is, why are these three people talking to each other this way? <laughs> why is he looking only at her and not at her? She grew up to be a scientist, and I think quite naturally I grew up to be a writer. So, yeah, I would say from earliest time, ever since I can remember, I've always been aware of how it is with people and watching and listening, and you can fill in the rest. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got this sense in reading that family dynamics, getting at family dynamics to you were getting closest to the heart of the matter, basically, that a writer could get. Do you think that's true? Well, I think it became true after Fierce Attachments, after I was writing that book. That book came out of the earliest years of the women's movement, my earliest conversion, my earliest thinking about, not even thinking, but just the idea of writing about myself and my mother seemed extraordinarily exciting suddenly. And in fact, when I was writing, practically nobody was doing that. It all came afterwards. It's a long time ago. It suddenly seemed exciting. In other words, it seemed like a writer's subject. And that had never occurred to me. But it was the women's movement that brought it clearly to fruition. And once I started to do that, 
And at the same time, of course, was in psychotherapy. <laughs> the family began to be my bete noir and everybody else's. It didn't occur to me until the women's movement and psychoanalysis together that I could dare to think of criticizing the family, that I could dare to think of writing without sentimentality about the family. And it was exciting. It was very exciting to think that I could say the real hard truth, that I could speak whatever I thought was the really hard truth. That's all. And that took a lot of isolating, by the way, to figure out that that's what I wanted to do. Not that I wanted to victimize myself or my mother, but to say to myself, it's just the hard truth I'm going to put down here. And then all the chips fall where they may. I'm not going to trash her. I'm not going to trash myself. But of course, the hard truth, <laughs> it did what it did. That's how it came about. And then, of course, it was very absorbing for all of us. It was a singular personal affair, and it was a political public affair. These things that we were all seeing at the same time. And then you began to realize the family. These particular relations, which I had not thought, I had not really thought about before. Not in any terms other than sentimental or myth-making. You know, young writers are always making myths out of kids in MFA programs. All they do is make myth out of the family. <laughs> Mostly trashing the mother and father, evening scores. <laughs> that takes a lot of living to learn, not as a person, as a writer, to learn that doesn't work. It also does seem like similar to books, something that you can return to over time and understand differently. You know, that the position of a parent, you can really only understand as you grow older. So it does seem like something that you continue to reevaluate as you age, right? Yes, absolutely. I think as you age, you should be able to see them as they see themselves more readily. And I was old already when I wrote Fierce Attachments. Well, I'm middle-aged. I wasn't old, but I was certainly middle-aged. Old enough to have achieved enough distance. Distance is the other important element, speaking of style. The right distance is everything. Achieving the right distance, not too far, not too close. Not myopic, and yet not looking at the whole thing through a periscope or something. And that takes a lot of time. I wonder if one of the ways in which you achieved the right amount of distance was by sort of moving kind of fluidly and for so long very impressively between the personal, the political, and how those two fit together. Because famously, your family is a political family. Those two are not separable for you necessarily. And I wonder if sort of being able to abstract and get at the politics was also afforded you some form of distance. I think it was the other way around. All the political stuff, the romance of American communism is what you're talking about. Yeah. All that is myopic. <laughs> what I mean is, <laughs> I don't think I had the right distance there. No. From there to much later writing was the achievement, I think, of distance. I know, I really shouldn't say this because the book has a lot of fans and they resent the fact that I don't like it as much as they do. <laughs> I do feel the book was sentimental and romantic. Not that there isn't a lot of truth in it and accurate information and not that it's not a piece of history. It is, it all is. But it seems to me that what I was learning to do came much later, that I was learning to write 
what I've come to call personal narrative, in which I use myself as an instrument of illumination, but I'm after something else. I'm not using myself in order to, I mean, my feelings are not a subject and my personal history is not a subject. It has to be in service to something, to some idea, some engagement, some something that's beyond myself. The way a novel is engaged by an emotional insight, a piece of emotional wisdom. So I've always felt that the best work is when you use yourself to illuminate something else. I did not do that in the romance of American communism. You think you did something the other way around, that you use politics to illuminate family dynamics? Well, to some degree, to some degree, yeah. And also it was very romantic. It was a very romantic book. They were all beautiful. They were all idealistic. They were all, <laughs> the men were all handsome. The women were all very well-spoken. And they all had the only, the best in mind, <laughs> which we all know is not exactly true. I don't regret any of it. I really don't. And I think actually that a lot of the descriptions in it serve them well. And they deserve those descriptions. But it received a huge amount of criticism when it was published. There was nobody, nobody wrote positively about it. And years later, I read those reviews and I see their point. <laughs> I mean, I see all the ways in which I let them make terms. You know, when you make the terms, in other words, when you do a good piece of writing, you're making terms. And then you can't be faulted in the usual ways. People can write essentially and saying, this is not my cup of tea. I don't like this book because of this, this, and this. But it's different, really different, when you haven't done the kind of job that disallows for that kind of criticism. I'm getting abstract here. <laughs> Speaking of returning to polemical, possibly polemical writings, this unfinished business is mostly about rereading novels. But of course, I can't help but wonder if you ever return to the kind of second wave feminist writing that was so revolutionary for you and that you wrote about and covered at the time. Now, if you have reread any of those works now, if you think it's possible to reread them, if there's benefit in rereading them, the kind of shelf life of political writing. It's funny you should ask that question since I have just been preparing a collection of my essays with Verso books and this collection will be published in March. And my editor at Verso insisted that some of my own pieces from the Village Voice from those years be included. And like with the Romance American Communist, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. I said, it's all rhetorical. I can't stay looking at it anymore. But she insisted that it would not be an accurate picture because the collection is meant to really show the work from today to back when I started. So I reread, I had to reread them, and there is a lot, it is polemical writing, no question about that. See, no question about that. That's the kind of thing I said constantly, without a doubt. <laughs> There's no question. <laughs> Stuff is filled with that. Nevertheless, it really reads, as a lot of that stuff reads, like original social documentation. And I'm glad I wrote it, and I'm glad to include it. I mean, I don't consider it good writing in the sense that I strove to write in the years that followed. But what I wrote and what a whole bunch of us wrote, you can feel the bursting quality of what we were seeing as if 
as if we were inventing the world. And that quality is there in almost all of those works when they're good. A lot of the stuff that can sound nutty to young people, I think. Phyllis Chesler's Women in Madness, Sisterhood is Powerful, Alex Shulman's Memoirs Our Next Prom Queen. All these things are, whatever they value as literature, they're absolutely worth reading as social documents. They really put together for you a generation of young women who were reinventing the wheel. We were rediscovering what's been discovered every 50 years for the last 200 years. So yes, I think it's worth, I think it's worth reading when you're in the grip of feminist surprise yourself. You know, when you're in the grip of really feeling a lot of this stuff yourself, when you're feeling, oh my God, I really am a second class citizen. Oh my God, I really am a sexual object. I never forgot that one. I wrote, we are sexual objects. And then like, A year or two later, somebody said or did something to me, and I said, my God, I really am a sexual object. (laughs) It was like that all the time. (laughs) First came the experience, then came the ideology, then came the re-experience in the light of the ideology. And there's a lot of that that's captured in all that writing. So yes, read us all. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Vivian Gornick, author of Unfinished Business, Notes of a Chronic Rereader. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Arnette Roy joining us today. She's calling in from Delhi. I don't think she needs really a thorough introduction. I'm certain our listeners will be quite familiar with her, but her latest book is called Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction. It's a collection of essays. And Arundhati is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Arundhati, what book are you going to recommend? Well, I just finished reading uh, a very long two-volume biography of Hitler by Ian Kershaw. Wow. uh, It's really a pretty wonderfully done book and I was completely absorbed by it and learned a lot from reading it. What uh, made you decide to read that? You know, because I've been wondering for a long time whether fascism is something that just organically appears in a certain kind of person and their mindset and then they start doing things that other fascists have done organically or whether these people really study each other. I read uh, this book and came to the conclusion that they do study each other closely. Although why they then continue to do things that will lead to their inevitable demise, I can't say. But certainly they have studied Nazism carefully, the Hindu fascists. Oh, interesting. So, and what was it, does it seem like Hitler studied in order to to arrive at his own version? Well, I'm not sure, but uh, he had a whole lot of gurus, anti-Semitic gurus that he was very fond of and read closely. So... You know, mm-hmm. even when he wrote uh, Mein Kampf, he, which was way back before he became uh, the Hitler that the world knows, yeah. his anti-Semitism was based on a lot of people that he read and admired. And you found that this illuminated 
the the current political situation in India? I think so, yes. I mean, as I said, the RSS, which is the organization to which Modi belongs and which is in truth the really most powerful organization in India, not the government, mm -hmm. uh, they have ideologues who have openly referred to Hitler and Mussolini. You know, so in Gujarat, uh, which was the state Modi was chief minister for, for 15 years, you had school textbooks with great world leaders, which included Hitler on the cover. Oh, uh, well, it sounds like an interesting book. <laughs> or it's a fascinating book, but it's a long read. But it does yeah. seem like a long read. Um, well, fascism is in itself probably a long read. Arundhati, would you tell us the name of the book again and the author? Ian Kershaw is the author. And uh, the book is called Hitler, a biography. Thank you so much, Arundhati. You're welcome. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Vivian Gornick, author of Unfinished Business. So, I, I mean, speaking of that, I think one of the fascinating things about the book in Unfinished Business, you kind of go back to these moments when you suddenly saw things anew. So one of the ways was when you sort of discovered feminism and you went back to books and you were like, oh my God, I've been reading about men this entire time. I wonder if you could tell us more about the other kinds of experiences or theories that you encountered that made you see anew as either a reader or as a person, aside from feminism. So I think what experiences or theories or politics you encountered that was like the like feminism that made you sort of see things anew? Well, it was just living. I mean, what can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was just living. The major experience of my life as an eye-opener, as, as the thing that opened me completely to the relation between my little life and the culture in which I live and history and seeing it all getting larger and larger and larger was definitely feminism. There's no question about it. That, that was, even though, you see, I wrote about uh, communism because I was living among people who had experienced exactly that through communism. I hadn't, it wasn't a, a huge emotional experience for me. For communists, it was. And there were among them communists who could move from polemics to a sense of existential truth, to um, an understanding of personal neurosis, to all of those things. You know, that nest of Chinese boxes enfolded in one another. For me, it was feminism that opened me to the, in fact, I used a metaphor years ago in which I said, What's happening now is like shaking a kaleidoscope. All the pieces are the same as they were before you shook the kaleidoscope, only now there's a different design and there's more space around or less space or, you know, it looks different. It's the same pieces and the same life and it just looks different. And, uh, and it's that difference that you have to pay attention to. So there were communists, plenty, and of, of every kind of person who grow from the polemic rather than narrow down. Um, and I, I feel that for, for me, the key experience was feminism. It made me see myself in the world and in history as nothing else had. And then, of 
course, it made me see my own neurotic self, which which nothing could help me out of except me. Um, And again, I read the books in that light as well as all these other lights. But how to explain why I am such a rereader, I can't really explain that. You know, Nabokov once said, the only real reader is a rereader. And I I was shocked by that because uh, I didn't come upon, I only came upon it when I was working on this book. And I thought hard about what does that mean? And I, of course, I think it's true. I mean, not the only real reader, but the, the meaning of living with books is that you keep living, you can live with the same text over and over and over again because you're changing. I mean, right. that's all. It's you, you're changing. So, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> And you see, you see what you did not see. I mean, I mean, how many times have you, late at night when I can't read anymore and I'm not tired, I watch movies. I'm sure everybody does. And I watch the same movie. I have a whole bunch of movies in the house that I can watch once a year. You know, and I, so I watch them once a year. And I'm amazed at, at the things that I see. Last night I watched Gandhi. You know that movie, Gandhi? Yeah, yeah. Very long, very long. Very long. It's like three hours. Yeah, yeah. But it was late. I I I can stay up very late. In fact, I'd stay up late because I don't get tired until late. Anyway, I I've seen that movie half a dozen times. I was amazed at the beginning. I'd completely forgotten what they said at the beginning, and it was a thrill <laughs> to go through the whole damn thing again. <laughs> Because it absorbed me. I was learning from it. I mean, it, it, it has to hook you. It's something that has to engage you deeply. Writing the book, I, I mean, it, it, I guess it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a large question. And in some ways, it's just hard, I guess, probably hard to answer. But did you have any thoughts about what makes um, a work timeless like that? What makes, what, what differentiates a, a work of literature or a great film something that, that can be returned to over and over again from, from something that would be tiresome, just reading it over and over again? It's the emotional truth at the heart of it. If it's deep enough and strong enough, you go back and back and back, and it holds you. You, you read the same things. You're thrilled by the same things again. I used to read The, the Odd Woman, The Odd Women, George Gissing's The Odd Women. I used to read it every six months for years, always in the winter, lie down on the couch and read The Odd Women. And I read it because it thrilled me. And because every time I read it, I felt anew and deeper the things he felt and the things I felt in relation to the things he felt. And more than feeling, what it made me see and feel. But it's always that. It's emotional wisdom that transcends the ages. Nothing else. I mean, there's, there's, you know, nothing else. I mean, lots and lots of people will disagree with that, but not us, right? (laughs) (laughs) And with rereading, I sometimes worry that there'll be some betrayal of my younger self or my younger experience, right? That you will, you will read this book and you will think, oh God, it wasn't like this at all, right? And you do have these experiences when you're rereading. Um, and you kind of... What is the betrayal? The betrayal would be a betrayal of what you thought had been a real experience. Oh. And kept as a real experience until you disillusion yourself and reread the book and you're like, oh, that wasn't actually about this at all. 
so and that so that kind did that ever scare you the sense that well the way this book started was i wrote something that finally did not find its way into it and that was i reread after 30 years howard's end and i was shocked at how i got the whole thing wrong <laughs> What did you get wrong? Everything I remembered was wrong. I, I had the details wrong. <laughs> and also, I had idealized the book immensely. Immensely. I had imagined, I had mythicized what I thought was a great mystery at the heart of the book. Now I reread it 30 years later and I saw he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> the writer himself then I saw behind that, then I started to ask myself, why does this man seem to be writing as if he doesn't know what he's talking about? And then I thought, what is he hiding from himself? Because he is very intelligent and very sensitive. And yet none of it is up front. You know, nothing that he's really thinking about or feeling. Whatever the story is behind these characters, you feel that the writer is, is, is not that even that he's holding back, but that he just doesn't know what he doesn't want to know. Well, that was exciting. And I wrote about that. And that's how this book came about, by the way. An editor I'd had before, she read this and she said, this is a book, sit down and write it. <laughs> then it took me like a hundred years to do it. But that didn't get into a fierce attachments, but that was the beginning of it, seeing uh, actually, the question I ask is, if I got this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, how come it still holds me? How come I still find it interesting? How come I still find other interesting questions to ask about it? So, well, I, I think the thing in, in this book, too, is that as opposed to, you know, I think lots of people say, don't return to a place that you loved. It yeah. will never be as good or, you know, don't even... You, you know, you can't go home again, th those kind of things. With, with the books, it seems that each time you reread, you do have new insight. And even with, um, in, in, this, in the case of rereading books and being disappointed, it seemed to me that when you reread Colette, for instance, yeah. she was kind of a fallen, a, a fallen hero for you uh, when you returned to her these, these many years later. But it, you certainly were still able to understand her books in a, in a new way. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that. What? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just, well, I mean, maybe both, you know, that the lack of, lack of your, your, you know, quote unquote courage to, to, to kind of let go of past experience um, by, by losing a book that you loved by having reading it again and, and then having it kind of fill a different place in your mind. And in particular, that's what happened when you reread Colette, right? You think that took courage? Well, well I don't know. Um, I mean, not, not great moral courage, but I mean, you certainly have to have a, emotional courage to, 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 and be not sentimental to let go of experience that was really important to you, you know? And, and you kind of lose that when, when you read someone and you think, oh, this, I was wrong. This yeah. is different. But if you don't have any other thoughts, then you've lost it all. Right. But if you have new thoughts, I mean, I, I would have been, uh, yes, I would have been very unhappy if I reread her and all I could think was, oh, God, this sucks. I can't do this. Anymore. <laughs> Nobody can do this anymore. But I, I used it to speak about the changing culture. The heart of that piece is 
Could any 23-year-old today read Colette the way I read her when I was 23? The question answers itself, right? Nobody could. No, no 23-year-old could read her today as, uh, as I did. Just because she's so, she, she's so shallow. No, she's not shallow. No, she's not shallow. She was deep for her moment. She's, she's, utterly in, she's utterly enraptured by the idea that erotic passion of a high order is the key experience in life. And that anyone who, who pursues that, it doesn't matter what, what you lose, what, what doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you're groveling, if you're enslaved, if you're, it's great. <laughs> when we were kids, we got into that. Because we elevated it, we didn't really, we couldn't really translate it into actual experience. When my friends and I were reading this at City College and communing over this, right? Or Mary McCarthy, all those, (laughs) when we were doing that, we we were lifting from a literary experience, a supposition of actual experience, which believe me, was not going to work out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was Colette knew better she knew from all the failing love affairs she, she, and she says it in the vagabond um, oh what a disservice you have done me by introducing me to this latest lover she says in her mind to a friend oh the torment of slavery I now find myself once again in but oh how delicious I wouldn't have it any other way well, bullshit. We would we would have it another way. <laughs> no young woman today, I don't think. I hope not. Would say, "Ugh, at any price, uh, this." So that and she wouldn't say it today. Um, and who the hell is writing like that today? Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, <laughs> that's as far as it gets. I mean, what? Nobody can. Re- no one can use that as a metaphor anymore. And she could, and she did it fantastically. And, and you know, when she did, it was an int- incredible eye-opener. She wrote Vagabond in 1910. In 1910, the world was astonished by, the, by what she wrote, the reality. The little death that she called orgasm. Um, you know, it, it, the, the place that she gave to sex, to sexual passion, was uh, it was a remarkable thing, and if, and I think I quoted Gide wrote, wrote her a note and said, "This is a perfect book. I have nothing to say." <laughs> and it is a perfect book, you know. If you somewhere somewhere, it is a perfect book, but not not really readable today. I don't think. Um, of course, there are plenty of people who would string me up for saying this. Uh, <laughs> my own age. Uh, but there we are. I, I couldn't let that go. I could, it was it was like anti-Semitism. If, if I hear anti-Semitism, I can't, I can't let it go. I have to announce I'm a Jew. <laughs> when I was reading Colette, I thought, I cannot let this go. <laughs> this doesn't feel right anymore. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that you, you can't let it go because it seems like one of the things that you keep returning to in the book as you're rereading other books is, and was something that you mentioned earlier, which is what your, you know, sort of the, the lesson that your mother gave you, which is love above all things. Love is most important. I was surprised about that. Well, partly because, you know, it felt like that 
potentially the, the advice of that generation was more practical. Survive. Oh, well, no, for her, for her generation, but not for us. She didn't, when you would say, sorry, what do you mean? You mean she would have uh, urged me to marry a rich man or something? Yeah. That um, no, that, that she, um, that, that the lessons were, you know, survival above all things. Meaning what? Well, yeah, whatever, if it means a rich man or it means a stable household, then that's that's what you should do. Well, it, it was included. The idea of getting married and having children and being settled in that way was the major destiny for a girl. But, but she was a romantic. She was a communist and she was a romantic. So she said love is the most important. But what she really meant was be a virgin until you get married, then get married and have children. yes. Have a nice trait. In other words, if she worked in a factory, she didn't want me to work in a factory. If she was a white collar worker, she wanted me to have a profession of some sort. Just like the, the scientists whom I met, you know, like the young woman who who noticed the leaves in the in, on the mall. Um, her mother said to her, "Yeah, sure, you like science, good. Get become a scientist, become a science, a high school science teacher, and get married." My mother thought that when I started to write, my mother was alarmed. She thought I should be a teacher uh, and that that was her practicality, but not more than that. There were, there were lots of different mothers. You know, there were a lot of people who were ruthless and who were, um, who had really low down morals and low down. And they said, marry a rich man, no matter what. But my mother wasn't like that. But it doesn't really matter what they said. The important thing was, to get married. And when they said love is the most important thing, and I'm not, well, she didn't mean have affairs. She didn't mean fall in love, get laid, and leave them. No, that's not what she meant. <laughs> she meant. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it was as conventional as everybody else. Yeah. Worse. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering... Uh... Maybe to to close, if if there's if if you think that there's anything that rereading can kind of show us about the course of the world, and uh, I'm thinking about the way that all these people now have been returning to the Decameron because of because of the pandemic, or you know they're rereading Defoe, that all these the way that books suddenly from a hundred years ago become so relevant, and that. You know, just the way, if that makes you think about the way time is, the way existence is in, in any other way, that we could be, you know... Examples of what rereading is for. It's to, to place experience in proportion. It's to place experience. It's very comforting to place a panic-ridden experience in history. It's very, it's very reassuring to feel, oh, others have been here before. And this is, this is not the be-all and end-all of the world, or this is not the first time. When we as feminists rediscovered the suffragists of the 19th century, it was immense comfort. It was tremendous to see ourselves in history, to see, oh, others have been here before and have said the same thing. When you saw, for instance, that, you saw how long this struggle was going to be and what it was all about. It's the same thing now. People are comforting themselves by reading about the pandemic, the pandemics of, of history. And 
maybe scientists will learn things from it. I don't think people are learning anything in particular, except that, oh, we've been here before. I just finished reading a piece in, um, in the TLS, a, a, late, a, a recent TLS by Tim Parks, who lives in Milan. And he, he was writing about how the, he was tracing all of this from uh, February, February, early March to now, and how, how it all unfolded in Italy, and each step of the way, he's reading another book. He's reading the Decameron. He's reading the Plague Year. He's reading all of, and show and comparing. He finds passages in each of these old books that match exactly what was being said in Milan uh, a few months ago. Every step of the way, you know. Ah, oh, this is ridiculous. Oh, this is quaint. Oh, this is nothing. Blah blah. You know the way it was with all of us. And he, he's clearly, he's comforting himself with it. Nothing else. He's just comforting himself by seeing himself in history. And it is sort of a comfort to see that people um, responded in the same way, except, of course, they were dropping in the streets. <laughs> in every one of those plagues, I mean, millions of people were dying. And um, uh, it's not not exactly the same, but it, it, it gives you an equivalent, a historical equivalent uh, with which as you say, to comfort yourself. That seems like a good place to end. <laughs> well, this is much more of a pleasure than I thought. This is the first Zoom I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. We've been speaking with Vivian Gornet, author of Unfinished Business. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.